Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I'll be speaking with Tarfia Fazula, who is a poet, author of the award-winning collection Seam, as well as a new collection entitled Registers of Illuminated Villages, which just came out from Grey Wolf Press this year. She teaches at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and I'm very happy to have her here on the phone line. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing really well. Glad we could make this happen. I'm really excited to talk about the book. Um, yeah, thank you. Me too. Of course. And you're calling in from Detroit today? Or no, you're Michigan. You're in Ann Arbor, right? Um, I'm actually currently in New York at the moment. I'm transitioning from Ann Arbor to Chicago. Oh, wow. Okay. How's yeah. that going for you? Um, it's cool. Uh, I was born in Brooklyn, and it's my birth month, so I really like to be in, in Brooklyn um, during my birthday. So it's been good. It's a little hot here, but um, other than that, things are good. Okay, well, good. Well, to kind of dive into the interview a little bit, I was interested about uh, the beginning of your writing, and I was wondering, mm-hmm. when did you write your first poem, and, and what are your feelings towards it now? Um, I think the earliest poem I can remember writing was in a diary that my mother bought me, and uh, it had a lock on it and everything, and I thought that was pretty exciting. And I wrote a poem that basically said, my mother is my best friend, I will love her until the very end. Um, but I remember having, being sort of aware of the fact that it was hard to, it was hard to figure out what I wanted to say and I worked really hard on trying to make what I was trying to say musical. Yeah. And I think that's probably my earliest. I don't remember how old I was. Um, I was definitely under 10, okay. um, 10 years old, yeah. No, I really like that. I guess you stand by those feelings in the poem, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. My mom's great. <laughs> she gave birth to me, so, I mean, I, I don't know what else. That's good. That. Yeah. <laughs> Did you uh, did you show it to anybody, or did you just keep it for yourself? I just kept it for myself. Um, I did also, I have another kind of early memory that's next to that, where we had a kid's encyclopedia, um, a child's encyclopedia Britannica, and there was a volume dedicated to just poetry, and so... I would I would I would really enjoy copying out um, copying out those poems and I think it was in second grade I showed it to my teacher Mr Hicks and I didn't realize that I was plagiarizing it was one of my earliest lessons in plagiarizing because I was literally writing it out and I showed it to him and um, he was really impressed he was like this is really good and I said I know right it is really good and then <laughs> and then he and then he came across me copying it out of the encyclopedia and he said is this what you've been doing this whole time and I said yeah and again I didn't know anything that I'd done anything wrong, and, um, and and then he explained plagiarism to me, and, and I was pretty blown away by that. Oh, so, wow. yeah, so there was sort of understanding by, you know, figuring it out by emulation, and then I guess figuring it out by realizing how hard it is to come up with your own thoughts, and then the words to words actually behind them. Yeah, I get that. That's pretty funny, actually. <laughs> yeah. No, um, well, kind of stemming, stemming from that, what's your relationship to kind of the personal aspects of writing for yourself versus um, releasing it to the public? Are you squeamish about it? Is something you kind of enjoy? Like, how has that kind of progressed throughout your career now? That's such a great question. I, I, I've been thinking about that a lot, actually, lately. Um, I think that I, I definitely feel that it's uncomfortable, but I think that that's part of the reason why I do it. I think because it forces me to really consider the differences between private self, public self. Um, and I think that 
I, I do feel like I've created, um, you know, some uh, almost a, I think, you know, when I, when I'm teaching creative writing in the classroom, I always encourage my students to refer to the author or the voice in the poem as the speaker, which I think is important because it sort of protects the imagination of the author and doesn't necessarily ascribe personal experiences to the author. Though I think that, I think you could certainly, like I think that I do write about um, experiences that uh, are personal to me and, 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 there, there are things that I'm grappling with that I'm trying to understand, not just about myself, but about the larger world. And so I think that there's a really interesting motion kind of back and forth between the personal self and the public self. And I think that back and forth, um, like I said, like I find it uncomfortable, but I think I learn a lot inevitably from forcing myself to think about it, um, to think about not necessarily audience, but I usually think about a reader. Like I think that I'm speaking, trying to speak to somebody who uh, may understand me um, or may want to try to understand me. Interesting. In the same way that I'm trying to understand myself. No, I, I get that completely. And uh, I'm interested to think about that framework with, with the new book, Registers of Illuminated Villages, which uh, I know you've been working on for the past 10 years or so. Yeah, yeah, I've been working on it for a while. And uh, I'm interested to hear, because it does seem to have more personal parts of you kind of inflected in there and about kind of your relationship mm -hmm. with, with those poems uh, versus your previous book, Seam, which you're, uh, were kind of, you know, investigating voices of something that is a part of your, your life and your history, but, you know, separate from you. Um, sure. How did you kind of negotiate that? And, and how did this book kind of start for you? Well, I, I think that's why it took a, a long time for me to get it as close to right, I guess, although maybe that's not quite the right word, as close to finished. Yeah. Um, as close to, uh, like, I, I guess the way I think about it is it took that long for me to figure out how to, uh, how to really do right by it. Um, I, I think that it started with wanting to grapple with grief and how you, yeah, how to sort of live, how to live with sorrow, but not let sorrow take over everything. And I do make references in a number of poems to um, a sister who has passed. Um, and I think that one of the things I was trying to do was try, was to try to understand how I could sort of simultaneously, any human can carry sorrow forward but also um, transcend it, also let themselves experience other emotions. I think sometimes in the aftermath of losing somebody, we feel guilty about living. We feel guilty about surviving. Um, and I wanted to try to understand how and why that might be true um, and still sort of live in the world. How do you live in the past and the present at the same time? Yeah. No, I think that that's important, and that kind of like permeates throughout the entire book. Those ideas coming through, um, specifically that idea of like dealing with brief. I, I think uh, two of the poems, what the what this elegy wants, as well as one hundred bells. You kind of have it as this 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 force. These things that are continually there, but they're not the only things. But they're moving in time and outside of it at the same point. Um, it's yeah, really exactly. interesting. Thank you. Um, yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say that I think that um, I think too that. 
one of the reasons I love poetry so much is that it's it's sort of you know like you're you're trying to fit a tornado into a you know into a much smaller space like a you know like you're trying to fit a tornado into a Tupperware container <laughs> and you know it takes some doing to do that because it's a tornado um it's really unwieldy and has its own mind and so i think that human emotion is like that i think we can feel really overcome and overwhelmed by human emotion but i wanted to sort of take all of that energy and that momentum and that force and to try to try to not necessarily tame it but put it in a form that I could carry it more easily. Yeah, no, I get that. And I, I really admire the structure of this book as well, where you have these poems kind of divided into to three sections, I'd say. And in the middle, you have um, your kind of soliloquies of the um, of the village of widows um, based in, in Bangladesh, which is really kind of fascinating. And you have those bordered by these like black, jet black pages, uh, kind of setting them aside, which is really stark and almost... Um, really silencing in a lot of ways, which is really interesting. And I wanted to talk to you about uh, how you decided to structure the book and why you made the decision to include those pages in there. Yeah. Well, um, those pages are somewhat inspired by a poet named Jeffrey Pettybridge, who uh, who put black pages um, in his book. And I think one of the things that I found really as a way of um, sort of memorializing um and you know a lost uh, another lost sibling and i really responded to that for obvious reasons i think obviously the book deals with the loss of a sibling as well but i also was sort of thinking that there is something about i was thinking also about the experience of reading a book and wanting to have some features built into the book that spoke a lot louder than words i think silence is one of those things that is built into is built into poetry by virtue of the form like something like a line break for example creates a kind of pause and some of the pauses i really wanted to be starker um i also wanted that those poems i think to be sectioned off sort of separately because they do deal with um a more distant past and so they're almost sort of like i think like i, I guess i sort of think of them a little bit as grave markers um a place that you can sort of really see the physical, uh, I guess, symbol of absence or loss. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that entirely. Interesting. Um, yeah. To talk a little bit about your, your first book, Seam, um, which deals with these voices, uh, I know you went to Bangladesh to interview some of these women that were affected by the liberation war in 1971 who were sexually assaulted and, and raped. Uh, what was that experience like for you? Oh man, <laughs> that's a big question. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I think that I really, I really transformed that year, and I think I originally went to Bangladesh on this research research fellowship on a Fulbright with, um, in some ways, no expectations. I had this conversation with myself before I went, um, where I said to myself, "Terfia, you may not write any poems necessarily, and you might have to be prepared for that." Um, and this is an opportunity to really be present inside of an experience. So I actually wasn't sure I was going to write any poems from the experience at all because the poems hadn't happened yet and I couldn't quite envision them. Yeah. Um, and then I started meeting, meeting women who had survived the war and survived this horrible sexual assault and started to be very... Um, I, I, guess I, I guess when I first went there, I sort of had... 
I'm embarrassed to say this now, looking back, or as my younger self, but I had these much, much more black and white ideas of what it was to be a victim versus a survivor. And, um, and when I started talking to these women, I think the thing that really stood out to me was that they were resilient and that they had, they were able to access painful, difficult memories and still live in the present moment. Um, I remember somebody, one of the women I spoke to said something kind of offhandedly because I asked her, how do you, how do you do this? How do you live with such painful memories? And she said, well, you know, we keep open houses and um, we like to smile. And I thought that was such a profound uh, bomb, I guess, um, against the idea of uh, this idea that you, this idea that you could potentially um, go through something traumatic and not survive it. So, um, yeah, I just, I just felt like I I met so many resilient people who really filled me with a kind of awe and wonder and um, made me feel like it was possible to be, it was that it is, it is possible to, uh, not necessarily rise above trauma, but to live with it in a way that does not necessarily interfere with experiencing beauty as well. Yeah, I, I think that's important. I think that gets overshadowed a lot in kind of our bicameral, our, our need for binary, either this or that. Um, it reminds me a lot of, um, you ever seen the movie The Babadook? No, I haven't. Uh, a lot of it's like a metaphorical, but it, uh, kind of the point is an idea of managing grief and working hand in hand with it, knowing that it's going to be there and kind of um, dealing with that in all its various forms, some of which are very unpleasant. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Um, I think that book is incredibly empathetic. Would you would you consider that right as far as like you know, a, kind of an exercise in empathy and also witnessing? I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I do. I do think about I do think about empathy. I, I think empathy has its limits. Like I think the book I wrote is actually problematic. Like I don't think that it um, necessarily solves any problems, yeah. I guess is the way to put it. Um, and I want to be careful in, you know, in sort of thinking that I myself understand um or could possibly understand what it's like to be a woman who has gone through um, sexual assault during a war, that kind of widespread sort of state-mandated sexual assault, Um, while also sort of thinking that I do feel like when I met those women, we had points of connection that were beyond and outside of what had happened to any of us. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I I do feel like it was an exercise in compassion, but I think there are just there are severe limitations, and I think I've tried not to fool myself into thinking that that my book solves any problems. I guess, which mm-hmm. I think sometimes one of the things that I I hesitate I think to use the word empathy sometimes because I think well, do I understand or do I just do I understand what I understand, which is maybe not what anybody else understands. Yeah, you're in your own little box, and you're kind of um, limited by by your own frame within that. That that's that's tricky. That's really tricky. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's sort of like how do you, like how do you kind of 
try to cultivate a broad way of thinking while understanding that maybe it's not entirely always possible. Yeah, and that, that that's interesting. Did you get any flack from, from people for kind of uh, positioning those voices in that book in, in this way? Because I know, as you mentioned, like it's, it's kind of a problematic taking other people's uh, voices on the page and kind of registering them with these, these things that have happened. W- what was that experience like for you, if, if you got any flack for that? Yeah, I mean, I... As it was happening, I, as I was writing these poems um, towards the completion of the book, I was thinking to myself, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what it is that I've done here. You know, like those, yeah. there are those moments where I think as a creator, you're really inside the work and it's hard to see it more objectively. And then after the book came out, I really had mixed feelings about it. Um, but again, like I, like I said earlier, I think I sort of, chase discomfort because I think I learned something from discomfort. Like I'd rather take the risk and be uncomfortable and learn something than um, have an experience where maybe it's a little bit more comfortable, but, you know, ultimately I've sort of stayed safe, I suppose. Um, so I, I think that there was some criticism about the lyricism, particularly mm-hmm. of, um, of the poems, that some of the criticism was that the poems were too beautiful something that I heard. And I, and I thought that was really interesting. I've talked about this before, this idea that it's really surprising that we would assume that a woman who has undergone severe violence wouldn't be capable of beautiful thoughts. And I think that that's, I think that's a mistake. You know, I mean, I, I think that that's, um, I, I think oftentimes the world can sort of kind of open up in a way because you've been hurt and um, that you can see things in the world that you couldn't otherwise because you have this prismatic way of thinking about it because you understand breakage, you know? Yeah, things can Um, And I think... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, I think beautiful things can grow from breakage, and so I think... um, Yeah, I I mean, I think I felt sort of... I mean, I, I think that the criticism is absolutely valid, but I think my response to it is, why? Why couldn't a woman who, why couldn't anybody who has gone through something horrific be capable of thinking beautiful thoughts or experiencing beauty in any way? Yeah, no, no, exactly. I think it, it's it's so in our art and kind of in our li- limited spectrum of what we're able to do on the page or on the screen. Um, sometimes we forget that people are mostly always more than one thing. Uh, and we can ascribe those to them, and it makes the psychology more interesting. It makes them more complex people, um, and yeah. that it's not not superficial in that way. Um, yeah, no, I think that that's an interesting point you bring up. Um, to to kind of move to something different about your your own biography, um, you grew up in the Midlands, Texas. Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah I was born in Brooklyn, and I grew up in um, West Texas. What are uh, what are some of your favorite memories from from then? Besides the Tex-Mex. Yeah. Usually, <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm just thinking. We're almost, we're about lunchtime now too. So, the, I mean, the first thing that popped into my mind was just tacos and rice and beans and a huge thing of salsa right in front of me. So I was, I would say the tacos definitely. That's a good thing um, to be uh, fond of. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of tacos. I'm a little obsessive, maybe around the edges about them. <laughs> but um, so, so tacos, and then I also think about, um, I also think about the sky, the the horizon in Texas and West Texas particularly is really astonishing. It's called that part of Texas is called Big Sky Country, and I think for a very good reason. The sunsets there, especially during the summer, are just quite 
quite astonishing, I would say, because the land is so flat, so you can see so much of the sky. So I remember that. Um, I think about. Um, I, th- I think about going to. Going to. Uh, I had a funny experience um, going to the school called Trinity, and. My oldest friend, I've known her since I was five years old, so I went to that school from the time I was five till I graduated from um, high school. There's a poem in the book that I that I think is based on some experiences at Trinity called The Doors to Trinity. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was this interesting experience I had as growing up simultaneously um, as a Muslim who was attending an Episcopalian school. And... Um, one of my earliest memories is in second grade, my oldest friend who, um, is black. She was the only black girl. I was the only brown girl. And we got separated for laughing too hard. (laughs) (laughs) We were cracking each other up and, um, I guess it went too far because our teacher separated us. And we decided then and there that we were going to learn how to communicate telepathically. And many years later, I will say that, uh, we were hanging out in Austin, um, and we were we were up late in our hotel room and, as usual, cracking each other up. And we got in trouble again. We got a phone call um, from the front desk. There had been <laughs> complaints about how loud we were being. So, <laughs> so we're still so we're still getting trouble for um, for laughing too much. So I also feel like part of what I remember is this very unique experience of being um, sort of like uh, being being a minority, I guess. Um, being a minority in West Texas too, alongside other minorities. So, yeah, yeah. I get that, 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 that uh, solidarity and kind of that time continuum. <laughs> That's great. I, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was just talking to her last night and we were, we were talking, we, we sort of often talk about how we get, how we got in trouble. I think we're still really in awe of that, <laughs> that we, that we just continue <laughs> to get in trouble for laughing too hard. No, I get that entirely. <laughs> No, that's awesome. Um, I know you're you're teaching right now at, at Ann Arbor, and I know you're going to be moving to Chicago shortly, right? Yeah, so um, I had a visiting position at the University of Michigan. It was, um, it was great. And um, I'm about to be at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago for nine months teaching wow. there. And then from there, we'll see. Okay, cool. Uh, do Do you have a favorite a favorite aspect of of teaching? I'm always interested to hear. So, <clears throat> um, I think for me, my favorite aspect of teaching is creating a space where people feel comfortable engaging discomfort. And I feel like I've brought up discomfort a few times for a reason because I think it's really, I think it's really important and useful to be able to develop. Um, to be able to look at something uncomfortable and think about it and not necessarily shy away from discomfort. Um, So I I like creating a space where my students can really engage with what they find complicated, what they find difficult, what they find interesting. Um, And I I guess if I had a pedagogical style, I would describe it as the magic was you all along. Like (laughs) I don't necessarily feel, though I know a lot about poetry and I feel definitely I'm there to, sort of pour in, into their brains a lot of data, I also feel like my primary job is to create a space, a metaphysical space where they can really think through themselves what it is they are thinking about and are haunted by and what it is they themselves want to understand in an individual way. So I would say I get a lot from watching others and I get a lot from the experience of others 
um, feeling comfortable enough to make their way to revelations of their own. Okay, interesting. Uh, could you give an example of like something you've done in a class to kind of um, uh, position your students to that, that kind of place of, of discomfort and then eventual like revelation? Yeah, sure. So, so one of the so something I did this past semester is that I brought in a list of contentious statements that were sort of I mean they were kind of playfully contentious. Um, so one of them was dogs are better than cats. And it was really amazing to watch my students go after that. You know, they were kind of like, you know, I had like a whole bunch of people who were like, dogs are the best. And there was, there was a lot of loudness about, um, there was, there was a, the volume on how great dogs were versus cats was really high. Yeah. And, then, and then I asked, you know, is there anybody who wants to take up for the cats? And one of my quietest, shyest, but also most brilliant students raised her hand and she went on this glorious rant about how amazing cats are. And so, so that's kind of a playful example, but then from there I brought in more serious statements like about say race or gender um, as a way of getting them to also engage with each other over these issues. One of the, I think, values of the creative writing classroom is that you are in discussion with each other. Um, and then from there I would give them a writing exercise based on what had come up from them as the things that were contentious to them, things that had bothered them inside of that conversation. When you felt anger or frustration at someone's response to what you had to say, uh, why do you, what do you think was underneath that frustration? And, and then I would encourage them to write from that place while also giving them some poems that I think model that kind of, um, you know, that kind of, I guess, like restlessness. Yeah, I think that's important. And it's also like setting this kind of interdisciplinary um, uh, setting for, for, for your students. It's not just about the writing. It's not just about the poetry or reading something. It's about all these things that can be put in there. I think that's really cool. Yeah, thank you. I really, um, I really like to use other methods. I like to bring in other art forms as a way of thinking about how to approach poetry. Like I like to, for, you know, so for example, um, we were looking at the guzzle, which is a, you know, a form that has repetition of a repeated word throughout the poem. And then it's also in couplets. And so I showed them um, a couple of dance videos of, of dancing duos, I guess, mm. versus a solo dancer to sort of show them how, you know, like, and then we had a really interesting discussion about the difference between say a solo dancer and, a duo as a way of thinking about line breaks and trying to understand how quantities have something to do with poetry too, that it's a kind of, that it's a kind of math. That's a kind of elegant math that we're trying to achieve ideally. Yeah, interesting. That, that's really cool. I love, um, I always like the idea of like a donut where you're always talking around something in order to get to the topic uh, in the center yeah. right there. And it's an absence or and not an absence, a, uh, I guess it is an absence, an absence of something right there. But if you talk around it, it makes the donut, right? Um, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That makes me think about donuts. That makes me want a donut really. I know. Actually. I'm killing your night now with this interview before lunch. <laughs> well, kinda, a couple more questions for you. They're kind of fun. Um, do you have a favorite book that you keep coming back to? Um, I guess I would say A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Lingle oh, wow. is definitely a book that I reread every year. And if, even if I'm not rereading it, I think, even if I'm actively, actively reading it, I think a lot about it. Um, yeah, I, I would say that's one of my favorite books of all time. And I would put, so I guess like it, that's the YA 
version, but I also really love A Hundred Years of Solitude. Um, yeah, by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Nice. Um, that, yeah. Those are two of my favorite books. I, I'm, I'm all in on, on those. That's great. <laughs> great. Well, and uh, to kind of kind of wrap us up, um, I'm wondering what you're reading right now, um, and also what what projects are you working on? I know you have a third book in the works. Yeah, I am um, writing towards a third book. Um, I'm also writing some prose. Um, we're going to see what comes of that. That's a slightly more that's a genre that's it's a form that's challenging for me in a different way than yeah. poetry. Um, so I'm writing some prose. Um, and you ask what I'm reading right now? Yes. Um, right now I'm reading a lot of nonfiction. So I'm reading um, Correspondence, which is a collection of letters between the poet Paul Ceylon and Ingborg Bachman. Oh, wow. Um, so that's been really beautiful. They're sort of love letters, but they're complicated. They had kind of a, you know, they 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 fought, and then they also supported each other's work. And so... Um, so I'm rereading that. Um, I'm reading a book called Bengali Harlem, which is about the immigration of eight of Bengalis who married into communities like New Orleans and Detroit and Harlem, um, Puerto Rican and Dominican and, and African-American communities yeah. in the 1800s. And so I'm thinking about that, um, that kind of thing, um, migration outside of, I think when it comes to Bangladesh, which is where my family is from, we really think about migration as having happened in the 1970s. But yeah, in the 1800s, there were Bengalis coming over who were hosting up in Treme, and, um, for example, and, and marrying into uh, these different pre-established communities. So I'm reading that. Um, I'm also reading A Lucky Man by Jamel Brinkley. Um, and that's terrific so far. I tend to, as you can tell, like I kind of bounce from book to book. Yeah. Um, and I'm also reading a book called The Purity of Desire, which are poems, specifically love poems by Rumi. Okay. Well, you've got a wide selection right there. That, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's interesting about the, uh, the, uh, the Bengali um, migration book. Uh, uh, that's more of a continuum, again, uh, that you can see in your work. And I guess we're going to get you in New Orleans to do some research, right? Yeah, I hope so. That would be great. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> All right. Well, Tarfia, thank you so much for coming on. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you, too. That was poet Tarfia Faizula, author of Registers of Illuminated Villages as well as Seam. And you've been listening to the Writers' Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. You can catch our show every Thursday at 3 p.m. as well as on Sunday at 8.30 a.m. This program, as well as all of WRBH's other interview programs, can be found online after they air on WRBH's SoundCloud page, which is found at soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.